Well, it's been a while since we've been in Colossians, so I'm going to just kind of sum up a few areas to kind of bring us to where we are tonight. And so if you don't know, just first and foremost, real simple, the book of Colossians is written by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing this letter to a church that he actually didn't found. And he's writing this also to a church that possibly, it's quite possible that he's actually never even visited it. He may know some of the people. He may know none of the people. We, we don't know for sure. But the church was actually started by one of his dear companions, Epaphras. And Epaphras, he was, at some point in time, he was in Ephesus and heard the gospel. And Paul had, had the privilege to lead him to the Lord, and his order of business was, I'm going back home. This is where he's from, Colossae. He goes, I'm going back home, and I'm going to share the gospel. I'm going to share the good news. And from that, a church was born to which he was uh, pastoring. And so uh, he is the one also who is now going to bring the news to Paul of what's going on in the church. And what we see is that this letter is written first really to encourage these believers who are clearly growing in the Lord. This is a good group of people. This is the one that you want to see. They're growing in their relationship with the Lord. But he's also writing to them at this time, he's going to write a warning. And he's warning them of the false teachers who are beginning to undermine the supremacy, right? That's to say the preeminence of Christ. And they were also beginning to undermine the sufficiency of Christ and the sacrifice. And maybe even this would bring us to a place where was it even necessary, as we'll talk about uh, tonight. And so we can see that he's clearly concerned, and this is how I draw my conclusion of whether somebody's concerned, because Epaphras leaves Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey, and travels all the way to Rome, which is in Italy. They're not nearby. And he travels there to visit Paul in prison to let him know what's going on. And so for me, that tells me it's probably worth the trip that he wants them to know what's going on. So Paul, he starts, so as this letter starts, he starts encouraging them by telling them how he's encouraged to hear of their faith in the Lord and actually of their love for one another. And that he's heard of the fruit that's abounding there because of the working of the gospel in their lives. And that's just it. Like, I'm just going to pause because listen, if the gospel is working in your life, then your life should be producing fruit. This is, it's a pretty simple formula. So if your life's not producing fruit, then you got to ask yourself, is the gospel working in my life? Or are there changes that maybe I need to be making in my life? But he's super excited to say, hey, these guys, they're fruitful. The gospel is at work in their lives. And he shares his prayer with them as he continues on, and he prays that they would be filled with the knowledge and wisdom and all spiritual understanding. And that's a great prayer for people who have false teachers that are in the church to be able to discern what it is that they're actually saying. And Paul says, this is my prayer for you. So then this brings us to our last study where Paul began to build his case that Christ and him alone 
has the supremacy in all things. And this would have been in verses 15 through 18. This is where you have a series of these all statements, all tied to Christ, right? That he was over all creation, that all things were by him and through him, and they were for him. And that he was before all things, and that in him all things consist. And then he ends there in verse 18 with an all, uh, all-encompassing statement by simply saying that Christ in all things has the preeminence. It's to say that he has the supremacy. It's to say that he is first. Jesus is first. And that brings us verse 19. And tonight we're going to see not only is our Lord and Savior first, does he have the supremacy in all things, but he and he alone is the one who's sufficient to rescue and redeem us. There's nothing else we need. Jesus is all that we need. That through his blood, which purchased our salvation, is the only way that we can be reconciled to our heavenly father. That's it. There's no other way. And that we will see clearly that the gospel message of Christ truly is the sweetest message anyone can ever hear. We can hear good messages from time to time. If you followed my football team this year, you can hear a lot of good messages about it. One worth it. How do I know? Because they're not playing anymore. Right? You hear the birth of a child, it's a great message. You hear that somebody's getting married. Wonderful news. But the gospel that Jesus Christ came and he laid down his life, he died, he was buried, and he rose again, and that he did it for you so that you could be rescued and redeemed, so that you could be reconciled to the Father. There's no greater news that you can have life and life abundantly and then life eternal. There's no greater message. The gospel is the sweetest message that anyone can ever hear. It's the sweetest message that you can ever share. So let's go ahead and pick up here in verse 19. Let's read our verses for tonight. It'll be 19 through 23. And it says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul starts here in verse 19, and he says that it pleased the Father that in him, and in him is speaking of in Christ, that all the fullness should dwell. And what we need to understand is with this statement, immediately Paul is dismantling the false teachings of the Gnostics in Colossae, okay? Their teaching taught that deity was farmed out to all sorts of beings, 
especially even angels, which Paul will tackle later in this letter. And that Jesus just is simply one of many divine beings. So just put him on your shelf with all your other gods or all your other deities. He's right there with him. So there was nothing to distinguish him. But what Paul says here is that actually Christ stands completely alone because in him alone the Father was pleased that all the fullness should dwell. And all means it's complicated. And we nailed it right away on the first one. All. In him all the fullness should dwell. And the key words that we run into here is two words, and the words are fullness and dwell. And fullness comes from a Greek word that means the sum total of the divine power and attributes. And dwell means to be permanently at home in a certain place. So I take those two things, and now I plug them back into my verse, and this is what we see. That it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, all the divine power and all the divine attributes have always and permanently made their home in him and him alone. And now he's set apart from everyone. It's unique to him and him alone. And we need to understand, nothing divine was ever added to Jesus. Nothing divine was ever added to him. It's always been in him. It's always been him. It's his nature. Why? Because he is God. There was never a point in time when the father looked down and goes, oops, I forgot to put grace in my son. Because Jesus is grace. Jesus is mercy. Jesus is love. It's who he is. It can't be separated from him because it is who he is. And he loves perfectly. He's merciful perfectly. He's gracious perfectly. His tender mercies are always perfect because it's who he is. And Paul will will reiterate this in the next chapter in verse 9 when he says that in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. And because Christ is fully God, then he alone is sufficient to save and to reconcile you and I to the Father. Well, let's keep going. Verse 20 says, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. This verse shows us the preciousness of Jesus' blood. If there's one thing that you glean from this, it's how precious Jesus' blood really is. How precious is it? Well, his blood is what binds a sinful man who has placed his faith and trust in him to a holy God. What is the binding agent? It's his blood. So what could possibly be more valuable in this universe than the blood of Jesus? I mean, if we had the opportunity to take 
all the riches of this world and put them on one side, and if we were able to present all those riches to the Father, do you know what? That's not sufficient to purchase the salvation for one life. Not one. Yet the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cover anyone who's willing to come to him. Anyone can be rescued and redeemed. And that's why Peter says in his, in his uh, epistle, you've not been redeemed by corruptible things like silver and gold. Those things are all going to pass away. He says, but you've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. It's a word that's used to describe it so many times that it's precious. It's what brought life. His blood is sufficient to save anyone who places their faith and trust in him. Have you ever heard of somebody getting saved and it shocks you? Like, that person gave their life to the Lord? Oh my gosh. Is it even possible? Here's the reality. We should never be shocked when somebody comes to the Lord. Because we need to understand What saves them? We need to understand that there is no enemy too great that his blood cannot save and there is no sin too deep that it can't be washed away. There's none of it. He can do it all. It says, Jesus has freely offered this to all and the gospel is universal And it says he did this to reconcile all things to himself. That's an interesting sentence. He reconciles all things to himself. What does that mean? And it's important that we understand that universal reconciliation is not the same thing as universal salvation. They're different things. And this in no way is teaching universal salvation. We can't come to this verse and go and look and say, well, listen, in the end, everybody's going to be reconciled to God no matter what you think of Jesus. That's not what this is saying. It completely conflicts with the rest of Scripture. It messes with the gospel, and it also negates the sacrifice of Jesus and made it not even necessary to happen. So don't confuse universal reconciliation with salvation. And we have to understand that reconciliation between God and man is twofold. It's a twofold thing. At the cross, justice was satisfied by the blood of Jesus. And it was in that moment that the barrier was removed between sinful man and God. And it was in that moment that everyone was given the opportunity to enter into a right and a loving relationship with him. We know that the way was made, right? We talked about this on Sunday because when Jesus breathed his last, the veil was torn in the temple showing that access was now available. The ability to be reconciled is available to everyone. But there's a second part. 
The second part is we have to accept the way God has provided. And this is where it gets difficult for people because we don't necessarily want to accept the way God provided. I want to create my own way. It doesn't work that way. We have to accept the way that was provided, and that was to place our faith and trust in Jesus, and his precious blood forgives us of our sins, and it cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It's the only way. I mean, listen. Imagine if you had a debt of $1,000. He says, Jamie, man, I got no way that I'm going to be able to pay this debt. And so I send you a message. I say, hey, listen, there's an envelope on my desk. It's got $1,000 in it. All you got to do is come by and get it. It's yours. And you can go ahead and settle your debt. But you never do. It doesn't change the fact that there was always a way that was made for your debt to be satisfied. It's just you chose not to take the way that was provided for you. God's provided the way. And here's the thing. The hardest part about reconciliation is actually the first part, the part on Jesus. That's the hard part. The hard part was when God willingly sent his son and he sent him to die a horrible death to provide us as a sinful man the opportunity to be restored into a right and a loving relationship with him. That was the hard part. And God took care of that part. Our part, we didn't sacrifice anything. We come to him. We seek his forgiveness. We place our faith and trust in him. And he welcomes us into his family. The hard part's been done. And it's so sad to watch how many people refuse to accept the way God has provided. And many of us have friends or family members that we know that just refuse to accept the simplicity of the gospel. It's such a simple message. There's nothing complicated that we're being asked to do. But a life surrendered to the Lord is a life that has to die to self. And that's a hard part for a lot of people is we don't want to let go of the things that are hindering us to actually walk with the Lord, to walk in a right relationship. Well, Paul here, he's established firmly the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. And now he's going to take a moment to remind them of who they were before being rescued by the Lord. And he also shares with them the purpose of the reconciliation. Verse 21, he says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. He goes, listen, there was a time that you guys were completely alienated from God. And when he says alienated, what he's saying is saying, there was a time that you were estranged. There was a time that you were separated. There was a time that you were an outsider. Or we can just simply say, there was a time that you were alone. That you were alone. 
And as I began to think about it, I go, there is a loneliness that every person experiences related to their relationship that's been severed from God. There's a loneliness in the life of each person because they've been separated from their creator. And it's a loneliness that can only be satisfied by being in a right relationship with the Lord. That's amazing. And we see this. We can see this in the world. People are searching. They're trying to find something to satisfy, something to fill the void in their life, something that makes them feel complete. And listen, they may find things for a time that may satisfy, but it wears off. And they're right back and they're looking again and again and again for the next thing, the next relationship, the next activity, whatever it may be. Please fill this void that I have. It's a loneliness because they don't have a right relationship with their Lord and Savior, with God, with creator of the universe. The Lord is truly what will satisfy and bring joy to a heart. It's the Lord that does this. Psalm 90, verse 14. This is a a translation I found, and I loved it. It says, let the sunrise of your love end our dark night. Break through our clouded dawn again, for only you can satisfy our hearts, filling us with songs of joy to the end of our days. What happens when we have a right relationship with the Lord? It satisfies your heart to your very soul. You're completely satisfied. It fills your mouth with song. And you sing praises of joy and worship to the Lord. Why? Because you're at peace with the creator of the universe. Because your eternity has been settled. Your life is no longer alienated from God. And so it knows complete joy and complete satisfaction. It's found in him. Paul says, hey, listen, formerly you weren't only alienated, you were also enemies of God. And this speaks of their hostility towards him. It's just always straight, like as I think about it, I was like, man, I don't remember being hostile toward God. I don't remember being his enemy, but we were. Because we walked in the life that we wanted for ourselves. We kicked against everything that he had and purposed for our life. We didn't want to walk with him. In Ephesians, he, Paul elaborates on the hopelessness of our position when we're separated from him, when we're in that. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. He says, therefore, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made by the flesh, made made in the flesh by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, and here it is, having no hope and without God in the world. There's no worse place to be than to be without hope and to be completely separated from God. 
There's nothing worse. I mean, the outlook for a life without the Lord is bleak and it's desperate. It's desperate. And Paul says, this was your life. And this was your life in attitude and in action. Your thoughts were devoid of God, and this was clearly manifest in the things that you said and in the things that you do. That's how it's manifest, that we are his enemy, because our thoughts have nothing to do with him and what he would want. And that affects how we speak. It affects how we act. He says, that was your prior life. But what's amazing is when God gets a hold of a heart, he gets a hold of the whole heart. He doesn't go after a piece of it. When he goes after your heart, he says, and I'm taking the whole thing. It belongs to him. And when he has your whole heart, that begins to shape how you think. It's going to shape how you speak. And it's going to shape how you act and how we treat one another. Does he have your whole heart? Or are you still trying to hold back pieces for yourself? Surrender your whole heart to him. When you give your life to the Lord, 2 Corinthians says that we are a new creation in Christ. You're a new creation that the old has completely passed away and he has made all things new. How is it possible for us to look back at the old life fondly? Sometimes I hear, I've heard people share their testimony. And you listen to them, and they talk about their life before the Lord. You're like, man, I think they still kind of like it. Like they got a lot there, and it's just like, man, just touch on it. But what did the Lord do? Where was the change made? How, how can we look back at our old lives fondly and say, well, it wasn't that bad? What do you mean? How can we say that it wasn't that bad? We were alienated from God. We were estranged. We were alone. There was a loneliness that couldn't be filled in any way because it required a relationship with him. How can I possibly say that wasn't that bad? I was estranged. I was his enemy. I was at war with him. I had no peace in my life. That's the life before. Hey, listen. If you have the opportunity to look back at, the, at our lives, this should bring us to a place of praise and worship and thanksgiving. You look at that life and you go, thank you, Lord, for rescuing me. Thank you for your wonderful kindness and your grace and your tender mercy and your love toward me. Why did I wait so long? Why did I wait 19 years to experience the wonder of your love? It's wonderful. That's the life in Christ. And here's the thing. That life in Christ is wonderful, isn't it? I got news. It's going to get better. You think about that? Right? I sit here, we're like, man, my life in Christ is good. I got a good life. I got a good thing going. It's going to get better. 
heaven awaits. Seeing him face to face, that's what's coming. This is but a taste, a glimpse of what awaits each and every one of us that has a relationship with him. It's going to be wonderful. Well, the Colossians here, they've got a clear reminder of who they used to be before Christ through the body of his flesh, reconciling them, and it says, through his death. And I think that's so important to remember. Paul's noted two things. He said, listen, you're reconciled by his blood, but it's through the body of his flesh, through death. And it's important because Christ didn't come and give a finger prick of blood. He shed his blood from head to toe And it led to his death. That was the shedding of the blood. That was the sacrifice that was required to rescue and redeem you and I. It took that because when he died, it was in that moment that the righteous demands of the broken law were satisfied in full for you and I. Because we couldn't do it. We're completely disqualified. He's the only one qualified to do it for you and I. One commentator says, the cross is the strongest possible appeal to the sinner, leading him to reflect on the love of his creator. No means ever used to produce reconciliation between two alienated parties has had so much tenderness, so much power, as those which God used in his plan of salvation. And if the dying love of the Son of God fails to lead a sinner to God, then everything else will fail. That's enough. He went to the utmost extreme to let you know that he loves you. He wants you to know you're loved. And we come to that verse and oh, how deep and how wide is the love of God towards you and I. We don't know the depth and we don't know the width. We can't measure it because it's immeasurable. And we think about his thoughts towards you and I, right? His thoughts, as Psalm 139 says, there is the sands of the sea. Man, I could pick up a small handful of sand and I don't have that many thoughts, period. <laughs> period. And then we stand at the ocean, and you look at all that, and he goes, that's his thoughts towards me? I am ever on his mind. And his thoughts towards me are, they're good, I'm afraid I could come up with more negative thoughts than positive ones. That's just me. But his thoughts towards you and I, they're good. And they can't be measured. That's his love for you and I. And listen, the fact that God rescues and redeems his sinful creation, to me, it's miraculous. It's miraculous. Right? I mean, you get to chapter 6 of Genesis, you're like, oh, God's going to wipe this out, and he's just going to start over completely. 
which none of us would be here. But he doesn't save Noah. But God could look at that and just be like, doing the whole thing over again. None of us would be here. But he didn't do that. So the fact that he set a plan in motion to rescue us is miraculous. And it says also that Christ reconciled us with a purpose. What is it? Do you see it here? You can almost miss it. It says he reconciled us to present us holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. The reconciliation is amazing. We go, what? He reconciled. I've got peace with him. And he goes, I got something else for you. I'm going to present you. He wants to present us. Think about the things we like to present to people. What are the things you want to present to people? It's not the things you're ashamed of. That's not what we do. We want to present to people the things that we are proud of. We want people to see those things. We want to show people all the things we've done really well. I've never invited anybody over so I could show them my list of failures. I'd be like, come on in. This is a great room. I'm going to show you all the things that I've failed at through my life. And I'm like, well, that's going to be fun. Might be for you. Wouldn't be for me. But it's not the things I want to present. None of us do. We want to show our awards. We want to show our achievements. I mean, imagine if you were an artist, fantastic painter, and you're a collector of fine arts. Do you think I want to present to you my finest finger painting? (laughs) Can you imagine? Can you imagine me doing that? I present to you my finest finger painting. What would you think? Would you begin to say that? I can't believe he thinks that's art. I can't believe he thinks it's art. What could he possibly want me to say about that? These would be the things running through our mind. Why? Because we look and we go, what is that? What is he presenting to us? It wouldn't make any sense. And yet, I look at myself, much like my figure painting, with all of my shortcomings, I can look at all of my faults. I can look at all of my failures. And I can see myself and say, what can the Lord possibly see in me? What can he see in me? And Jesus, who rescued and redeemed me, who saved me, can look at me so tenderly, and he says, I would like to present you to the Father. He says it to me, And he says it to every one of you who have a relationship with him. And here's what's amazing. He wants to present us, and he knows us more intimately than we know ourselves. He knows you perfectly. And in spite of all those things, he says, I want to present you. I want to present you to the Father. And Jude tells us that he wants to present us to the Father and he wants to do it with exceeding joy. You're going to be presented to the Heavenly Father by Jesus with exceeding joy. 
Not Jesus going, here he is. That's what I got for you. That's not what he's going to do. He's going to delight in presenting us to our heavenly father one day. That's how much he loves you. It says here that he's going to present us first. He's going to present us holy. Holy in the sense that we have been set apart for him. He has set you and I apart to have a relationship with him and to walk uh, in the life that he has for you and I. That's what we've been set apart for. I mean, the greatest life that we can ever live is the life that simply abides with him. That's your greatest life. Be a good abider. It will all come down to that. Are you abiding with the Lord? Because if you want the fruitful, wonderful, beautiful life in Jesus, abide with him. Abide with him. He wants you. He's grafted you into his family. He wants you to be a part of it. When he reconciles us, he brings us back into a right and wonderful relationship with him. Not for us to continue to live how we want, It's so that we can live the life that he has for us. And here's the thing, guys. We get to do it with him. You're not walking that life alone. You're doing it with him. That's why you're never alone. You're never alone. He's walking with you. It says also that he wants to present you and I blameless. And this word means to be without blemish. And it's a word that was used in the Old Testament to describe the sacrifices. And so in order for that sacrifice to be acceptable, it had to be without spot or blemish. So what it's saying here is that when he presents us to the Father, he sees no defect in you and I. That's hard to believe. But that's how he sees us. And lastly, he says he will present us above reproach And that's to say that nobody can bring a charge against us. Nobody can accuse us. This this really is what began the road to sin in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? That's what it was, right? And the serpent, Satan, accused God of what? Of not being good, of withholding. There was an accusation made. And they heard it, and he goes, well, I'm not into that. So she takes the fruit, she eats it, and she shares it with her husband. Eyes are open, didn't work out quite the way they thought it did. And so the blame game begins, right? And Adam goes, it's the woman you gave me? She goes, well, it actually wasn't me. It was the serpent that was in the garden. And it all begins that cycle of sin. And yet here it says, we will stand unaccused. Not one accusation to be brought. And it's amazing because there in the garden, in spite of all that going on, what do we see? We see it's our good and our loving God who made the sacrifice for them, that he was the one that clothed and covered them, which was just simply a picture of what what Jesus would one day do for you and I on the cross, that he would sacrifice himself and his blood would be what covers our sins and our failures. It's hard for me to comprehend that one day I will stand before my heavenly Father, presented to him with the delight by my Lord and Savior, and that he's going to see me holy and blameless 
And if time were allowed to bring anybody in to stand accused, we wouldn't hear a word. Nothing would be said because we would be unaccused. That's what would happen. And why is all of this possible? Because Ephesians 1.6 says that we have been accepted in the beloved. You're accepted in the beloved. Which means when he sees me, when he sees you, he sees the wonderful working of his son in each of us. And this is for each and every one of us who placed our faith and trust in him. Well, let's bring this to a close. 23, and if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached on every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, I want us to understand here, this isn't some conditional statement that Paul is beginning to doubt that these Colossians will remain faithful. And, and uh, in verse 2-5, he says that he sees their good order and their steadfastness in their faith in Christ. This is not what he's saying. He's confident that they understand what it truly means to be reconciled and who is the one that has reconciled them and that they're going to remain faithful to him for that. But this, is, this was for the believer. He's speaking to the believer. But this is really where the wonderful working of the Holy Spirit comes in. And this is what comes into our lives. And this is really what enables us to walk out our faith each and every day. It's the Spirit of God in your life. We need to surrender our lives daily to Him and to give Him the freedom to work in and through us. It's a daily life of surrender. It's not a one and done. And as we yield ourselves, as we yield our lives to the Spirit, it allows Christ to accomplish His work in our lives. And it's so clear to me as I read this that Jesus did not simply want to save us, but that He wanted to bring us to Himself because He desired a relationship with us. He wanted more. Salvation was just the beginning. It was the necessary thing to bring us to that relationship. But he wanted to walk with you and I daily. That's what he wants. And so as we close, we clearly see that Jesus really is the only one sufficient to save and to reconcile us to the Father. He's the only one. There's absolutely no other way. He pulled each one of us out of our sin and darkness and our wickedness so that we could walk in his marvelous light when we placed our faith and trust in him. And in that moment of salvation, his precious blood bound our hearts to the Father's heart and we were reconciled to him. The war was over. We waved the flag of surrender. And true peace was ushered into our lives in that moment. And now as we stand upon the firm foundation of our faith, we have the daily privilege to walk with our Savior in the life that he has prepared for us. It's a privilege that you have each and every day. And one day, we'll see him face to face.
We're going to see Jesus in all his beauty. We're going to see Jesus in all his glory. And he will take us. And with exceeding joy, he's going to present us to the Father, holy and blameless and above reproach. That's your future. That's what lies ahead for you, brothers and sisters. And so I want to encourage you here. If you're a believer, as we close, and the worship team, you can come up. And during the song, and I'll just encourage you, just throughout the week, the time that you have, take time. Take time with thanksgiving and with rejoicing. Worship the Lord for all he did. Take time and just look and be like, man, I cannot believe the Lord rescued and redeemed me. Look at your salvation and give him the praise and the honor he's due. But then look at what he's doing. Look at what he's doing in your life right now and worship him for it. Give him the praise. Thank him that he hasn't just left you alone and by yourself and see in heaven, but that he's intimately involved in your life each and every day. And thank him for what he's going to do. He's not finished with you. You know how I know? You're here with me right now and not done. There's more to be done. Thank him that he's going to be using you and he wants to use you. He delights to use you for his glory. But if your relationship just feels a little cold with him, you're like, man, I haven't delighted in the Lord in a while. It's been a little bit. Then we're going to be up front. Let us pray for you. That the Lord would ignite the fire in your heart again. He saved you. He made a way. You're reconciled now to the Father. His blood bound you to him. You have a beautiful relationship with him. If it's lost that fire, if you've lost that zeal, you don't have a hunger and thirst for the things of the Lord, then let us pray for you that the Lord ignites that fire again. But I also want to say, if you're here tonight and you don't even have a relationship with the Lord, you're going, man, everything you just said sounds foreign. That doesn't make any sense. I don't know Jesus. Not the one that you're describing, but I want to. Then you come tonight. And you let today be the day of your salvation. And you let his blood cover your sin. You let him set you free. And be reconciled to your heavenly father. And experience the privilege after this of walking each and every day until the day you see him face to face. And guess what's going to happen? And he too will take you and he will present you with exceeding joy before the Father, holy, blameless, and above reproach. The wonder of the love of our God towards us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do just thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for loving us that much. 
Lord, thank you for when you looked upon our pitiful and desperate state, you didn't say, I'll start over. You said, actually, I've got a plan. I love them too much just to start over. I actually, I have a plan because I want to redeem them. I want to rescue them. I want to give them an opportunity to have a right relationship with me. And I delight to do it. I'm going to give you my son. He's perfect. He's wonderful. And he will lay down his life so that you can have life. And Lord, we thank you. Thank you for loving us that much. And Father, I pray, Lord, if there are those here tonight that are, that are struggling to even look to find the joy of their salvation or their days just feel dry or they just, they just need a refreshing touch from you tonight, Lord, just stir their hearts to come to be prayed for and allow you to ignite the fire in their hearts tonight afresh. And Lord, if there be someone here that doesn't know you, Lord, I pray, I plead that today would be their day of their salvation. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we're here. We're thankful that we draw breath and so we have the opportunity to pray. We have the opportunity to worship and give you all the glory and the honor you're due. Thank you that we're at peace, Lord. And we ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.